The title of the message today is Leap of Faith, as we come to that part in Esther's story arc where she has to do that, she's going to take a leap of faith. So I was thinking about leaps of faith, and it came to my mind June Wallace. Uh, I read about June Wallace not too long ago in the periodical The Restoration Herald, which is a Christian magazine. Some of you are familiar with it. I know HT is back there, and he forwards an issue uh, every month, really by PDF, whoever anyone wants that. But I was reading about June Wallace. Uh, They highlighted her in the Restoration Herald as a faithful reader of this magazine for a long time and someone who always renews her subscription in advance, and she renews it for three years at a time. So we're used to renewing an annual subscription, but you can renew for three years in advance. That in itself, I guess, is not remarkable, but what maybe was remarkable is this last time that June renewed, she was 100 years old. And she renewed her subscription for three years in advance. Now that may not qualify as a leap of faith, but it certainly is a leap of optimism. A leap of faith is something we're all called upon or get to do from time to time in our Christian walk. And so I want to look at Esther's leap of faith today. We're going to kind of break it down, look at some of its characteristics and features. I think this may help us in our own journey. Let's see three qualities of the leap of faith. And the first is risk. There is risk in a leap of faith. Now, Esther chapter 4, verse 16 is where Esther says, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So, you remember when we last left Esther, her foster father, Mordecai, had challenged her to intervene on behalf of her Jewish people there in Persia, who were scheduled to be annihilated three years, or three years. I just saw some guests right here. I didn't know you guys were coming this morning. Kind of threw me off there. I'm going to blame you guys right there. Welcome this morning. Uh, 11 months in advance. And so Esther's going to go before the king. This is risky. Nobody can come before a Persian king unless they have been summoned in advance. It was against the law. There are reliefs, relief meaning pictures from ancient Persia of the king standing with his scepter in the picture, and right beside him is a soldier with a giant axe. So if the king does not extend the scepter, then the soldier is ready to extend the axe and lop off the head of the person who came without an invitation. So there were seven officials who were authorized to go before the king without an invitation, but Esther is not one of those. So this is a great risk for her. In addition to that, she's not been summoned to the king for 30 days. In addition to that, she's going to be revealing, as she intercedes on behalf of the Jews, that she herself is a Jew, and she's been hiding that from the king. So risk upon risk for Esther. Faith always involves an element of risk. That's why it's faith. What's a synonym for faith? Trust. And that means we are trusting God that when we risk something or, in fact, have to sacrifice something, that God is worthy, He is worth it, and it will be worth our while in the long run. Let me give you two or three examples here from Hebrews chapter 11, which is known as the chapter of faith in that book. We'll have two Abrahams, a Moses, and a Rahab. Hebrews 11, 8, by faith Abraham. When called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. So here's Abraham. He's, leading his, he's leaving his family, his clan, the land he's familiar with. That's all the security you had back in that day. There's no social safety net, and he's risking everything to obey God. 
Abraham again, Hebrews eleven seventeen. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. So you know this. You know Abraham's story where he was challenged to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. His thought process was that he was going to sacrifice Isaac, and then he was trusting that God would immediately raise Isaac back from the dead. Now, that's very risky. That is something Abraham could not afford to be wrong about as he is trusting God. Someone once said, faith kills the son. We're always risking something we can't afford to lose if what we believe is not true. Moses, Hebrews eleven twenty four. 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So here's Moses. He's turning his back on pleasure, on prestige, on power in order to obey God. These are things he can never get back if he's wrong. And Rahab, Hebrews eleven thirty one. 31. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. But she didn't know that. She's risking her life. If she's caught by the authorities in Jericho for aiding and abetting the enemy, she could be executed. There's risk with faith. You know this. There is risk with faith. I like the way Aaron Chambers puts it in his book, Devoted. He writes, I don't want to be safe. I want to be faithful. I want to build an ark, lay my all on the altar, tell Pharaoh what to do, walk around the walled city, face the giant, square off against the prophets of Baal, and get out of the boat. I don't want to save faith. I want a saving faith. And then he goes on to describe what a safe faith looks like, maybe in a Christian. Maybe never sharing your faith, having no non-Christian friends, never singing too loud, never opening up to other Christians, sitting in a boat rather than treading the waves, never crying in front of your church or small group, never expressing doubts when experienced, never opening the Bible in private praying sporadically or only for once, having an obsession with our personal comfort, making fun of gays and trans instead of eating with them, not clapping after a baptism, criticizing enthusiastic faith in young people and new converts, never going on a a mission trip. You know, even in the very act of risking, we grow, regardless of the outcome. I, I would suggest that Esther was grown and stretched by God when she risked, even before she got the response from Xerxes. Sometimes, even if we fail, we don't get the outcome that we think we're going to get. God grows us. That's the story arc of Moses. I mentioned Moses earlier. Remember, he made an attempt early on to be the deliverer of the Israelites. He failed. It backfired. That's how he wound up out in obscurity in the desert, in the wilderness for 40 years before he tried again. And the next time he was successful. So his story arc looked like this. Faith, risk, failure, growth, risk again, and success. Maybe what we need in our lives is a little bit of failure. But even if that happens, God can grow us through that. Leap of faith. What's involved in a leap of faith? First thing is risk. Secondly, there's a plan. There's planning in a leap of faith. All right, chapter 5, verse 1. Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. 
Now, right here, Esther, uh, she, and we're going to see this as this unfolds in this particular point. She has a shrewd plan. She dresses herself. If you recall, when she first went into the contest to become a queen, she was coached on what to wear and how to act by the eunuch. She doesn't need that coaching now. In her own wisdom, she dresses herself. She's not dressing to seduce. She's dressing to influence the king. She puts on her royal robes that subtly communicates she wants to talk to him about something official, something important. The proper reaction from him would be to treat her with dignity and respect. Notice she does not barge into the inner court of the king. She stands respectfully along the outer edge, just in this line of sight, just enough to catch his attention. And this all begins to work. But she, while she has faith, she also has a plan. We pick it up again in verse 2. And when he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. Boy, what a relief for Esther. Her heart must have been pounding. So Esther approached, touched the tip of the scepter, and the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. In fact, the wording here is literally that Esther won the favor of the king, not just found his favor. She is actively, through her planning and her shrewdness, she is winning his favor. Same phrase that was used when she won the favor of the eunuch, when she became under the charge of the eunuch early on, years before. Actively, she is winning his favor. And so what happens is, instead of just blurting out right then what her request was to King Xerxes, she invites him and Haman to a banquet, sets up the banquet. She knows this king. We already know this king loves to eat. So she's going to soften him up a little bit. She invites him to a banquet. And we pick up in verse 6. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, now what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? And Esther replied, my petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor and if it pleases the king, to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet. I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. Now, this is a second banquet, a second invitation to the banquet. Why a second banquet? Why not just go ahead and ask? Well, apparently, you know, here's Esther's intent. There, there are two shrewd parts to this. Number one, she is, in effect, tying his attendance to the banquet to his approval for her request. She says, if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, come to the banquet. So by attending the banquet, she's, he's actually taken the first step to granting her request. The second part is by inviting Haman to come along. That is shrewd as well. He, of course, is the author of the order to annihilate the Jews. So she wants him there for the confrontation. But also, it's possible that if it was just Esther and Xerxes at the feast, he could agree to her request. But then later on, when he's with his council of advisors and she's not there, he might change his mind. And we've already seen how malleable this king is with his council of advisors. By, by bringing Haman into that meeting, and he is a witness, if, he, if the king agrees to her request, he's not going to back down in his pride before his chief official. So two very important parts of this plan.
Matthew 10, 16 reads, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Who said that? Jesus said that. Luke 16, 8, the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than they are the people of the light. Who said that? Jesus said that. Jesus said that we are to be shrewd. When we have faith, even a leap of faith, faith is not reckless, faith is not foolish, and faith is not careless. Faith plans. Have you ever noticed that our God that we serve is a God of plans, a God who plans? I mean, he planned the creation of the universe. He created for six days and then he rested. And then he gave that plan to the Israelites. You work for six days and then you rest on the seventh day. He gave them a plan for the tabernacle. He gave them a plan for the temple. He gave them a plan for their yearly calendar and their celebrations and their festivals. Our God planned the salvation of the world. He planned that in advance. And he said it's going to start in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and then to the other ends of the earth. He planned our response to his gracious invitation of salvation. We call this the plan of salvation, which is to believe the gospel, repent of our sin, confess Jesus as Lord, be baptized into Christ, receive the forgiveness of sin, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the five-finger exercise, the plan of God. Jesus said, if you're going to build a tower, you need to sit down and plan it out in advance. God has got a plan. So if we want to be like God, then we should plan. How many people here, raise your hand, if you've ever been to the Wall Drugstore in Wall, South Dakota? All right, 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 right. Keep your hand up. I want to see Wall Drugstore in Wall, South Dakota. I got a few here. Very good. About half the people in the first service have been there. Why should any of us, any of, and I have too, have ever gone to the Wall Drugstore in Wall, South Dakota? Well, let me tell you a little bit of its backstory. In 1932, Ted and Dorothy Houston bought the local drugstore. Seemed like a bad time. It's right in the middle of the what? The Depression. And soon after they bought it, there was a plague of grasshoppers that ate all the crops in the area. And that was followed by a drought, a long drought, 10 days at a time with over 100 degree temperatures, and nobody was coming to the drugstore. And so they, it looked like they were going to go under, and they, they sat down together and said, how can we get people to come to our drugstore? So they settled on a plan, a marketing plan, using billboards. They went out in all directions, 25 miles out from Wall, the city of Wall, and they put up billboards that said, 25 miles to free ice water at Wall Drugstore, Wall, South Dakota. And then they went out 5 miles and 10 miles with billboards that said, hang in there five more miles to free ice water at Wall Drugstore, Wall, South Dakota. That was their plan. And it worked. People started coming to their drugstore. And now there are signs up all over the countryside about Wall Drugstore. On a good day, they'll have 15,000 people come to their drugstore in a city with a population of 800. The most successful drugstore in the history of drugstores. How come? Because they had a plan. Drugstores had been serving free ice water for years, but they were the first ones with a marketing plan and advertised it. Faith and plans go together. Now, do you have to have a plan for God to providentially use you and his work in the kingdom? 
No, but so what? You know, it reminds me of uh, John Wesley. John Wesley was the father of the Methodist denomination. He was a workhorse for the kingdom, a brilliant man, studied the scriptures, knew many, many languages, wrote a lot of books, started that denomination. But one day he got a letter from a critic. It was a fellow minister who wrote to John Wesley, said, Dear John Wesley, God told me to write to you and let you know that he does not need all your book learning, your Greek and your Hebrew to advance his kingdom. Now, your friend, blabbity, blabbity. Well, John Wesley wrote this critic back. He said, dear sir, thank you for your letter, letting me know that God does not need all my book learning to advance the kingdom. Although it was superfluous, he said, because I already knew that. But he went on. He said, however, although... God has not told me to tell you this. I will tell you on my own authority that while God does not need my book learning to advance his kingdom, neither does he need your ignorance, your friend, John Wesley. All right, does God have to have our plans? No. He also doesn't have to have our carelessness, our recklessness, or our laziness to advance his kingdom. And a lot of times, it's to our own advantage when in faith we do, in fact, plan. All right, so what are we talking about? Leap of faith. Leap of faith has risks. Leap of faith often has a plan. And the third, and perhaps the most important, what's involved in a leap of faith is the providence of God. We're trusting in the providence of God. Esther 5.1, backing up a few verses. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes. Now, what is this reference to the third day? Well, as you recall previously, Esther had told Mordecai to have the Jews in Susa, in the kingdom, to fast on her behalf for three days, three days and three nights. And she was going to fast along with her servant girls for three days and three nights. So on the third day means after three days of fasting, she's going to go before the king. Uh, physically, this was not necessarily to her advantage. I don't know if anybody, I've never fasted for three days. Maybe some of you have fasted for three days. Uh, it's going to be telling. There may be, be some physical uh, appearance that's affected there, maybe some thinning. And in the, actually in the ancient Persian culture, they, the, they preferred women to be full-figured. And I'm not just saying that's true. That's why in the contest to become the queen, there was not only six months of beauty treatments with perfumes, there were six months of special foods that were being fed to these women. And so, you know, being thinner, coming before the king, was not going to be an advantage. Why would she do that? Why would she even add to her risk? Because physical appearance was like the number one thing to King Xerxes. Well, among other things, it's because Esther knows that her success is not just dependent on her shrewd plan and on her actions, but on the providence of God. Now, providence is God's non-miraculous intervention in our lives, in our circumstances, and the people that we encounter in our own lives. Non-miraculous intervention, orchestration in our lives, the providence of God on our behalf. And fasting is not just going without food, it's always related to prayer. That's assumed here. For instance, Joel 1.14, declare a holy fast and cry out to the Lord. That's fasting and prayer. Ezra 8.21, fast so that we might be humble ourselves before God and ask him for a safe journey. It's fasting and prayer. So the king did not have to extend his scepter, but he did. And the king did not have to offer to Esther 
an invitation to make a request, but he did. The king did not have to accept her invitation to a banquet, but he did. The king did not have to insist that Haman come along, but he did. And he did those things not just because Esther had a good plan, but because of this, what Solomon writes in Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like a stream of water directed by the Lord. He guides it wherever he pleases, and Persian kings are no exception. It's the providence of God. And Esther discovered that God was working through her courage, her boldness, and her plan. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 1, May God give you the power to accomplish all the good things your faith prompts you to do. Today I want each of us to ask a question in our own minds and hearts. What is your faith prompting you to do? What is my faith prompting me to do? What is our faith prompting us to risk? What have we risked for God lately? For some, maybe our faith is prompting us to come back to church. Maybe our faith is prompting us to make a commitment and join a church. Maybe our faith is prompting us to be involved in a ministry or to lead a ministry or to train for deaconship or eldership. What is our faith prompting us to do? James Clear writes, there will never be a perfect time to do something that stretches you. That's true whether you are starting a business, having a child, changing careers, or wrestling with any number of challenges. That's not a license to be reckless and never think things through. But at some point, you have to embrace the uncertainty because it is the only path forward. If you were ready for it, it wouldn't be growth. Now, I want to close this morning with a true story from the Ukraine. In the 2004 elections, the nation of Ukraine was moving ever so slowly toward democracy. The entrenched party ran a dirty, dishonest election. The challenger was a Christian reformer named Viktor Yushchenko, who was quite popular with many people. As election day neared, Yushchenko was poisoned by government supporters leaving his body weakened and his face permanently disfigured. Yet he remained in the race. On election day, exit polls showed him with a comfortable 10% lead. But the government reversed the results through outright fraud. That evening, the state-run television station reported, quote, Ladies and gentlemen, we announce that the challenger, Viktor Yushchenko, has been decisively defeated, end quote. However... Government authorities had not taken into account one feature of Ukrainian television, that is, the translation it provides for the hearing impaired. On the small screen inset in the lower right-hand corner of the television screen, a brave woman raised by deaf-mute parents gave a different message in sign language. Here's what she signed. I am addressing all the deaf citizens of Ukraine. Don't believe what the authorities say. They are lying, and I am ashamed to translate these lies. Yushchenko is our president. And then she said, you will probably never see me again. 200,000 deaf people, inspired by that translator, her name is Natalia Dimitrik, led the Orange Revolution. Orange was the campaign color of Yushchenko. 
They text messaged their friends about the fraudulent elections, and soon other journalists took courage from Dimitri's act of defiance and likewise refused to broadcast the party line. Over the next few weeks, as many as a million people wearing orange flooded the capital city of Kiev to demand new elections. The government finally buckled under the pressure, consenting to the new elections, and this time, Yushchenko emerged as the undisputed winner. All because one woman, like Esther, one woman of courage took a leap of faith. She stood up and she spoke truth to power. Again, what leap of faith might God be calling us to today? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, there's not a person in here who is a Christian who will not be challenged at some point to take a leap of faith and risk, and risk it all. And we pray, God, like our example this morning, like Esther, we will have the faith, the trust, the boldness, and the courage, planning to follow you and put our trust wholeheartedly in you. We know that not only will it be worth it, but that you are worthy in Jesus' name. Amen.